Welcome to the City Hill podcast. We really hope you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about City Hill, please visit our website, cityhill.london. Cool. So we're going to be doing this series um, called Consciousness. So we're going to be talking about a lot of different things. We're not really going to be staying on topic and on point all that much. We're going to be exploring different things over the course of the month and the series will kind of develop its own kind of consciousness is what I'm going for. So that should be some fun. So today we're going to kick things off looking at some really interesting stuff and something really ancient and probably not the kind of approach we should go for given the content because I'm going to cause more problems for myself than answers. But I'm totally comfortable with having more problems than answers because I find that life is a constant exploration and you don't need to have it all together straight away because at the end of the day, you don't have all the answers sway and you gotta, you gotta get used to not having all the answers because you're never gonna have all the answers and that's never gonna change. And so you gotta learn to live in the constant tension of the unknown because no one lives in the realm of the known. Only people live in a deluded position where they think they know, but they don't have all the answers sway and neither do you and neither do I. So the greatest minds in the world cannot solve the mystery of the most basic and fundamental belief that every single human being has. Actually, I'm gonna take that further. Science and the greatest thinkers in the world cannot solve the three most basic, believed, accepted fundamentals that every human being, regardless of who you are, where you're from, what culture, what civilization, what class, completely 100% believes in, yet there is no proof or evidence for any of them. That sounds like an insane statement to make, but you're gonna find out real fast how everything you embrace and believe actually has no real empirical, imperial evidence for. Consciousness is what we're talking about first off. Human consciousness is the only thing you truly know and experience and have 110% concrete faith in, your conscience your consciousness, your state of mind, that voice, that inner thing that you are. You 110% believe in that more than anything else in this world. Yet according to science, there is no proof and they cannot solve the problem of human consciousness. You can't even prove the one thing you believe more than anything in this world, that you are conscious. Because you can only analyze that from the inside, which means it cannot be tested, it cannot be measured. But actually, we don't have to just go human consciousness. Has anyone ever stubbed their foot on the end of the bed? Or on a couch? Or on anything wooden? Words come out of your mouth that are not speaking in tongues and they're not the normal language that you use. Everything comes out of your mouth when you stub your little toe. Pain cannot be scientifically proven. It doesn't exist. There's information going through the body, communicating up through the nerves and receptors and then getting to your brain, but there's no reason for pain. There's no reason it would be pain. It's not scientifically provable. So when we talk about it, we're talking about consciousness, the one thing you and I and everyone accepts cannot be measured and proven by science, which they hate, by the way. The philosophers talk about it and the scientists, they have war over this. And then when we move past that, we get to pain, the fundamental thing all of us believe in because we've all experienced it, but it cannot be scientifically proven. But actually, we can, trans- we can go even beyond that. What is the greatest desire every human being has? Is it for money in the account? No, it's for love. You and I crave to be loved and to love. And now we finally find ourselves 
at the third thing that we all believe in 100%, without doubt, no hesitation, we believe in it, we chase it, we want it, and we give it, and we want to give it, cannot be scientifically proven. Which is kind of awkward for me because as Rev Run says, I mean, Apostle John, God is love. Man, how Rev Run gets away with saying that at the end of each show, I have no idea because that is not your quote. God is love, Rev Run. No, it's not, it's in the Bible. You've written thousands of years before you signed that TV contract. What's wrong with you, man? Have you no shame? Jeez, I mean, especially as a guy who was like a, a rapper, wasn't he? Like, does he not like his lyrics being copyrighted? I don't know, because he just steals from, from John every single week. Hey, you all right? Hey, you all right? You cool? So I find that so fascinating that when we come down to the very most base thing, science cannot prove consciousness, it cannot prove pain, and it cannot prove love. But I am yet to meet a single human being that goes, you know what, I doubt the existence of consciousness, I doubt the existence of love, and I doubt the existence of pain. No one does, because we all experience those things. But they're not measurable, and they're not able to be proven. And so when we talk about this, we talk about something incredible, because the greatest minds cannot solve something and explain something every single one of us feels and experiences. Yet when we talk about the creation of the world and we talk about God and a notion like that, something that cannot be tested and cannot be experienced, but actually they say that it's within the desire of every human being to kind of crave for that kind of creator. It's an interesting thought. Now here's the thing, 30% of Brits feel evolutionary, I love that. So new scientists said this and they use this word feel and I wanna encourage Christians with all that you have to stop using that stupid word because when I read it in New Scientist I don't know what it did my spine had this tingly kind of thing and I kind of felt like a bit of like retching like I wanted to kind of throw up they put 30% of Brits feel and they had to put that because they had to undermine the next statement 30% of Brits feel evolutionary theory fails to explain the human existence and it rises to 44% with regard to human consciousness so when you talk about human beings being explained by evolutionary theory, 30% of Brits, that's a, big, that's a big percentage, that's more percentage of Brits than are in church, by the way. If, if you wanna know, there's like a five million Christians out of like a population of about 70 million. So if there's actually 30% of 70 million is larger than five million. So only speaking, more people will have doubts with this, but then it rises to 44%, which is a very significant sum, which isn't far off 50%. And I actually, for one, would like to challenge these stats because we're gonna explore that and the question doesn't really make sense. So 44% believe that evolutionary theory does not explain human consciousness. Well, of course it can't. You can't even explain human consciousness, which is a ridiculous thing. You can't explain human consciousness, so how could a scientific theory explain something that you don't even prove exists? It's, it's insane, and this is why scientists hate human consciousness, because it gets this mental conundrum of conversation that you have that sounds preposterous and ridiculous, but it's actually reality. And so actually, we are having the wrong conversations with people. We're kind of talking about the Genesis narrative, we're having all these discussions. Actually, the discussions you want to have is you want to start talking about love. Because everyone wants love, everyone talks about love, everyone desires love, everyone wants to give love and be loved, but we're talking about this weird conversations, and everyone has experienced pain, 
and the Bible talks about God being our healer, and there's so much exploration for a conversation with pain that we can have, which scientifically cannot be proven, and we can talk about consciousness. All of this stuff is absolutely incredible. Now, the thing that, for me, I found so unbelievably interesting was today, and I made reference to it at the beginning, is I want to look through the Genesis 1 poem, the opening stanza to the Bible. And what I want to do today is I want to not give anything exhaustive because there's so much content crammed into such a small passage that to try and do something exhaustive would be preposterous and ridiculous in like a 20-minute talk. And also, like I explained at the beginning, I don't feel the need to have to explain and give everything all in one go. And also, I just want to let you guys know, you can spend the rest of your lives exploring everything about God's Word. Every time I read a passage, I connect with it in a different way. And the beautiful thing about the Word of God is that every single time I read it, my understanding changes, partly because I grow, partly because God wants to connect in new ways with that passage, but also it's because there is a different person who reads the same text every single time. Because every time I approach that text, I'm a different person. Every day I'm becoming a different person. Every day I'm experiencing new things and seeing things from new angles because I no longer see things the same way because my consciousness, my thought, my patterns, my experiences, all of those things have grown. So today we're gonna be looking at part of Genesis. I'm gonna breeze through. I'm not gonna read the whole thing of the first chapter because we'll be here a lot longer than I wanna be. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and the darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I love these first two verses because you and I, we read this in the English language. Like I said earlier on, this is not written in the English language and actually how you experience and how you engage with this passage even before you get into the real kind of poem and the repetition and the, the rhythm, there, there's, there are different things you see. So in the beginning, God created, the Hebrew word for God is like Elohim. In Hebrew, you have singular and dual and plural. So in English, you and I, we speak in singular and in plural, and that's it, we have no dual. So what happens here in this first verse is Elohim is plural, it's not singular, it's not dual. So the first word for God is created God, but plural. So what we see, even in the very first verse of the Bible, an oral tradition, something that was passed down and repeated for thousands of years, even before we got to the New Testament and this idea that we talk about as Trinity had ever been surfaced and passed around, the very first verse of the Bible, we see it because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and it's creator Elohim. And when it says created the heavens and the earth, you get a, a muddy picture because there's this Hebrew word bara, which people will say means to create out of nothing. And the only reason they say that is because this is the first verse of the Bible. So bara means to create, but it also can be used to cut like you would cut meat. And so the idea in this first verse is actually that the heavens and the earth were one, they were created and they were cut in that word and separated. And the reason why that is fantastic is because actually when I've had discussions with different friends of mine who are scientists, one of the things they'll always talk about the universe, they talk about it coming from a focal point and that it's spreading out and that everything's separating from itself. And actually here, heavens, Hebrew, understanding everywhere but earth, 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 we're on it. And this expanse and this separation between the two is their cut. Why does that matter? Well, in Isaiah, what he says is he talks about it being like a scroll that is rolled out. And then he says that one day the scroll will be rolled back in on itself and he saw the stars falling to the earth is how he sees it from his eyes, eye view and how he experiences. What's fascinating about that is that science says that the universe exploded outward from one point and that one day they believe, not in any of our lifetime, they say hundreds of millions of years, the whole universe will go back in on itself. 
which is exactly how Isaiah explains the universe, rolling out like a scroll that comes back in. What's amazing even more is that just recently, scientists were saying that they now believe from evidence that they've seen that the universe is actually flat. And when they saw that, it knocked them back for a moment because they said, well, what? Everything's randomly created and it's flat. And they interpret that as being ordered. But then they said the amazing thing which happens whenever you have the argument is completely random and it just happened randomly, then of course it's completely possible that a flat universe would exist in a random system because it's random and random could mean anything, which means you defend yourself from every position by going, it's just random, which for me was incredible. But actually, if the universe is kind of flat, then this image that Isaiah portrays is an even more powerful image, in my opinion, but that could be just me. And so then what happens is we see God creator, we see in plural, we see this expanse, all this stuff creating, and it talks about darkness, it talks about the spirit of God. And then in verse three, the key thing is that God said, God said. And then when John writes his gospel, the way he pitches it is he starts to say that actually um, he, he, he kind of like rebrands, redevelops this image we see here of creator. He calls the creator God Father and he calls the Spirit of God Holy Spirit. And then he speaks of the Word of God and he says the Word became flesh and blood and lived among us and we know him to be Jesus Christ. And so when we look at this passage, we see this Trinitarian view straight away off the first verse. We see the Spirit of God engaged in creation. We see the Creator God, Father God in creation. And we see the spoken word as Jesus speaking all things into being, which is why Paul writes that in him all things are created and have their being and that he's sustaining all things. And so God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness in the day and he called the light day and the darkness he called night. And then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse, separate the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above. And so God called the expanse this, this heaven everywhere but earth. And there was evening, there was morning the second day. Straight away in these two, you have this rhythm of there was evening, there was morning, evening, morning, this repetition, the starts and the shaping of this poem. The other thing you'll see is that something was so, and then you hear something was good. And you'll hear this repetition again, although there are some breaks in the play. So on the second day, the break in the play is he doesn't say it was good. And that's a weird thing, and that's a flag, and we'll get back to that flag. And then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land, and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Okay, we're back to that repetition again. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruits and trees, bearing fruit in which is in their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And God brought fruit vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and the trees bearing fruit in which their seed. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, separate from the day from the night, and let there be signs for the seasons and for the days and for the years, and let them have lights in the expanse to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule by day, the lesser light to rule by night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens and gave light to the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to the separate, light from, separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. So all along this way, apart from one day, he says it was good. And then we continue on, and now it's like, let the water swarm with all these living creatures, and God saw that it was good. And he tells them, bless them, be multiplied. And then God said, let there be forth living creatures on the earth to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. And then 26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, 
and let them have dominion over the fish and over the seas and the birds and the heavens over the livestock and over all the earth and the creeping thing. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then he goes on to bless them. And in each of these stages, apart from one, he saw that it was good. And there's this rhythm. There's morning. There was evening. And one of the things I think that I connected with as I was kind of wrestling with and looking at this passage is if you've been at City Hill for a while, if you've ever filled out a Connect card, you'll have been given like a copy of my book, The Karma Shima Drama. And what that is, is actually, forget the karma. I'm not a Buddhist monk. I may look like one. I'm not. Um, it's just because it's something that I want to engage with non-Christians and they just love a bit of Middle Eastern spirituality and like, oh yeah, karma, man. Yeah, bring the balance back to the universe. Cool, we can talk about balance. I don't mind. New balance, whatever balance. Let's talk about it. Let's engage with God. And so I kind of wrote that, but it's about the, the Shema or pronounced Shema, which is the greatest commandment in all of the Bible. And we're going to have a little pause while we look at this creation narrative and we're going to kind of flip to that passage it's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and it's, it's the greatest command. It's the greatest command in all the scripture that God gives us. And so what's great about the greatest command is it's an opportunity for you and I to skip past the superfluous and connect with the significant. And today what we're talking about is we want to connect with that which is significant. And the things that are significant in Jesus' words are not just the things that we decide to do, but he says, I don't do anything of my own initiative. I don't speak my own initiative. I speak what I hear the Father saying, and I, I do that which I see my Father doing. And so when we look at this creation story, I want to connect in a new way with something really old, really sacred, that actually dates back to the creation story and before it's even written here in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel. Here is the Hebrew word Shema. So we're to hear, O Israel, Israel is the people of the struggle. So it's addressing to a particular group because Jacob was called Jacob, one who, a hill grabber, a dodgy guy, wrestling with men, stealing whatever he could. He wrestles with God, he becomes Israel, one who wrestles with God. All that God calls you and I to be is people that wrestle with him. He calls us to be people like Jacob who don't tap out when life gets difficult, who when our hip gets dislocated, we don't go, well, that's it. Something bad's happened in my life. I'm done with God. But wrestle with God through it and say, God, I'm not letting go of you until you bless me. I'm not letting go of you until you bring a change in my life. And so when this passage talks in this way, it says, Hear, O Israel, because sometimes the Bible addresses Jacob as Jacob, sometimes it talks about him as Israel. It's talking to this people and saying, You're identified with this name and coming from here because this is the people I want you to be. I want you to be people of the struggle. I don't want you to be people tapping out in UFC fights in the first round. I... Jesus didn't tap out. He tapped into God's grace. And we need to be people who don't tap out, but tap into what God has for us. And so in this moment, what happens is we need to hear. And so God asks you and I to do one thing this morning just to hear. And that's not because this is a one-way conversation, because that's not what this is about. It's not just hearing what I'm saying. You need to hear on a daily basis what it is that God is wanting to breathe into your life like he breathed into Adam, that it takes real arms, real legs, real movement, that it gets lived out. And that's why the greatest commandment is so important. The Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. God wants you to hear that he wants you to love him with all that you are. He wants you to engage with that which cannot be empirically measured, scientifically weighed. He says, and these words that I command you shall be on your heart. He's like, this isn't something I want you to pay lip service to. This isn't something I want you to be about in like theory. This isn't something where you sit down at a table and just go, oh, uh, as millennials, I wonder what that would look like in a 21st century society. He's not looking for that. He's looking for this to be in your heart, 
which means whatever is in your heart will come out in your actions. It's real. It's not, when, people, when Christians talk about believe, they're, they're schizophrenic and they're detached and they're mentally unwell. They believe this, they do something else. Arsene Wenger doesn't say, I believe in one two-touch football and then have them hold the ball for half an hour to themselves dribbling back and forward. They move the ball quickly because that's what they believe in. Believe is a verb. The idea as a Christian that I believe this and I do that is, is the insanity workout. Buy a DVD series somewhere because I don't know what the heck you're talking about. So in this passage, he's saying, I want this in your heart. I want you to hear, and I want you to continually hear from me, and what you hear from me needs to be in your heart. And then it says, this is something you need to diligently teach to your children. So when we talk about the greatest command, we stop with, here are Israel, the Lord your God is one, you to love God with all you are. No, it keeps going. The command is that this command is on your heart, and that's still part of the command. And teaching this to the children is still a command. And it says you should talk about this when you sit down in your house, when you walk around by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. When you lie down, when you rise, there was evening, there was morning. There was evening, there was morning. Did you hear the Genesis story? Here, right here in the Grace Command, the Genesis rhythm that's going on, there was evening, there was morning. And you talk about this when you lie down, and you should bind them on your hand. It talks about then visual aids. Visual aids around the house, on the gate, so that as you leave, you remember, I'm here to hear and action love and loving God. That when you come back in, on the other side of the gate, on your way home, you see the visual aid, this is about love. It doesn't stop now that I've left this field, this mission and this greatest commandment carries on out in my house, with my family, with my friends, whoever I live with, my, my, my flatmates, whatever. It carries on. And then it's as you lie down and it's as you wake up, you review it. So what happened with God was God, at the beginning in the morning of the day, he starts actioning the great plan and the great commission of love with all that he is and is creating that which is loving and that is good. And then at the end of the day, what he does is he reviews it and says it was good. What I love is there is one day where he doesn't do that, but in the other days, there's one day where he says twice it was good. And that's because the very thing that he actioned that day didn't get fulfilled and finished till the next day. Because you can't finish something and say something's good when it's not finished, it's unfinished. And you have to wait to the correct area of time. Now what this is all about is that God started the process of creation. And my main point today about human consciousness is we are unique and we're different from everything else in the fact that we are conscious, sentient beings. And the reason for that is that God calls you to be a part of the ongoing creation of the world. Creation didn't stop after six days. He calls you and I to be like him. The reason he's our father and he's first introduced as creator is that every single human being, no matter what restrictions or disabilities or struggles you have, every human being that is alive on this earth is creative because they're like their father. And what God wants you and I to do is he wants us to be hearing so that we're actioning our life goal and meaning and mission into being creative people that also review it. Because the thing about hearing, the thing about the great commandment, the, the Shema, and the reason why Christians don't practice it, is because actually it takes effort, it takes time, and it never ends. And there's a constant daily rhythm to it. And the reason you do it in the morning, you do it on your way, on your way to bed is, in the morning you're like, God, what great plan of love and of creation am I going to be a part of today? And then at the evening, you're reviewing it. How did that go? Oh, well, that wasn't good. <laughs> We're different to God. Everything we do isn't always good. And that's so, so, so important. That at the end, we're reviewing what God is doing within us. And so often as Christians, we just walk through this life, just walking into things, and everything happens to us, 
but we're not intentionally happening to anything else. And that is what this is about. The creation story isn't about a God who accidentally stumbles into every situation and goes, oh, well, I didn't see that coming. He isn't a God who isn't unprepared, who doesn't have a plan, who doesn't have something he's creating. He's creating. But the great thing about the creation story is he makes man in his likeness and his image and he calls us to be co-creators and to continue working out the creation story around us, in our businesses, in our families, in our homes, with our children, with our friends, in our communities, in all that we do. And the only thing that he calls and channels you and I to do is to hear and to action. And he calls it to be something that doesn't happen once every now and then when we're at a great conference and we're really inspired and like, whoa, yay, this is amazing. I'm gonna do this for about the next three weeks and then it's all gonna fizzle out. He goes, I need you to connect and get plugged in with me every single day. Get it in the rhythm. Get it in the morning. Get it in the evening. Get it in the conversation in the daytime. And so I want to encourage you guys to have loving conversations. And I want to encourage you guys to start sharing your faith and expressing your faith in new and creative ways that are unique and exclusive to you because God loves you and he loves what you bring to the table. And it's not about Benny Hinn or Benny Hill and his white suit and his great thing. That's his thing. Let him, please let him be the only one who does that. I just beg you, let him be the only one who does the white suit, the Benny Hinn, the Benny Hill, the whatever he's doing. Let him do that. But what he's doing is valuable because it's him and it's what God hopefully has called him to be. I'm not co-signing that in any way. That's him. But what I am co-signing this morning is that God calls you to be you and he loves you and he loves your creativity and that you're made in the image of your creator, that he is on Jeremy Kyle and he's claiming every single child as his dad, every single time. He's the one dad who goes on Jeremy Kyle and the DNA test comes back and they say it's of the father of the devil. And he's going, no, I'll take him. I'll have him. God's mental like that. And he wants that to flow out in you and he wants that to flow out in me. I'm gonna pray for us today and that'll be it for the first part of our series. I thank you, Father God, that every single one of us is conscious. I thank you that we are here to engage with you and in your word. I thank you that we are called to be a part of the ongoing creation narrative, that it doesn't end. I also pray, Father God, that you would help us to have a clear conscience before you. And I pray that over the next four weeks, we'll be exploring ways that that happens. But I pray right now, Lord, that you would use us this week to be a part of the wider conversation, to be a part of the daily rhythm of your love, hearing from you, flowing from you, actioning what it is you have for us, that we may be used, not used, to be partakers and heirs in your kingdom, actioning that which you want to do. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. enjoyed today's message and if you'd like to find out more about City Hill please visit our website cityhill.london London.